0: Our guests of honor, we have Elizabeth McCracken, the author of six books, Here's Your Hat, What's Your Hurry, The Giant's House, Niagara Falls, All Over Again, an exact replica of A Figment of My Imagination, Thunderstruck, and Other Stories, and bowl Away. She's received grants and fellowships. yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to just, I'm trying to get them on stage, um. She has received uh, grants and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the La Guira Study Center, the American Academy in Berlin, the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Thunderstruck and Other Stories won the 2015 Story Prize. She's taught creative writing at Western Michigan University, the University of Oregon, University of Houston, and the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. She holds the James A. Mishner Chair in Fiction at the University of Texas, Austin. And joining her is Cynthia Dupree-Sweeney. She's the New York Times bestselling author of The Nest, which has been translated into more than 25 languages and optioned for for film by Amazon Studios, with Jill Soloway (laughs) producing. (laughs) She has an MFA from the Bennington Writing Seminars and lives in Los Angeles with her husband and children. And they are here to discuss Bolaway, which NPR... Claim, uh, exclaims, "It's wildly entertaining, wonderfully unpredictable, multi generational saga which revolves around a Massachusetts bowling alley. Bowlerway celebrates the oddest of oddballs and the freakiest of freak accidents with wit and heart. To read McCracken's in Tim, I don't even know how to say this actually, inimitable. Thank you. I've only ever read it. Inimitably clever sentences and follow her quirky narrative twists is to be con- uh, constantly delighted. Here they are."
1: Any number of stools. Yeah. Thank you. Do
2: you need one? No, I'm okay. Cause I, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> Are
1: you good?
2: Yeah. Okay. Hi, everybody. I think Elizabeth's going to start out by reading a I little I'm gonna bit. I am. going to take for a, for a look us, of water yeah. first.
1: Thanks, everybody, for coming. This is. This, pardon? No, No. (laughs) this is the nice galley that my publisher uh, um, put out. No, I get them free, (laughs) an almost unlimited supply. I I only need one, so. Um, Thanks, guys. I'm just going to read from the beginning of the book, because... um, I know that whenever I'm at a reading and somebody says, now all you need to know is, <laughs> I perp- like I just stop paying attention. <laughs> the, just, I say, screw you, I know everything I need to know. Don't tell me what I need to know. And then I'm lost in other people's readings. Um, I'm not saying that you guys are as terrible as I am, but that is what I do. Um, and so They're I'm- terrible. <laughs> so I'm just going to read just j- a tiny bit, which is the opening and the... Um, chapters of this novel are titled, and this um, chapter is titled, The Found Woman. They found a body in the Salford Cemetery, but above ground and alive. An ice storm the day before I'd beheaded the daffodils, and the cemetery was draped in frost. Midspring, Massachusetts, the turn of the century before last. The body lay face up near the obelisk that marked several generations of Pickersgills. Soon everyone in town would know her, but for now it was as though she'd dropped from the sky. A woman, stout, one bare fist held to her chin, white as a monument and soft as marble rubbed for luck. Her limbs were willy-nilly. Even her skirt looked broken in two along its central axis, though it was merely divided for cycling. Her name was Bertha Truitt. The Gladstone bag beside her contained one abandoned corset, one small bowling ball, one slender candlepin, and, underneath a false bottom, fifteen pounds of gold. The watchman on the Avenue of Sorrows, near where the babies were interred, sorry, the watchman was on the Avenue of Sorrows, near where the babies were interred, when he spotted her down the hill in the frost. He was a teenager, uneasy among the living, and not much better among the dead. He had been hired to keep an eye out. Things had been stolen. Bodies, no, not bodies. Statuary, a stone or two, half a grieving angel's granite wing. The young man, being alive, was not afraid of body snatchers, but he feared the dead breaking out of their sepulchers. Perhaps your one was. Himself, he wanted to be buried at sea, though to be buried at sea you had to go to sea. He'd been born on a ship in Boston Harbor, someone had once told him, but he had no memory of his birth nor of any boat, nor of his parents. He was an orphan. The woman. Was she alive or dead? The slope worried him. He'd had a troubled gait all his life, the boat or an accident at birth had caused it, and between the slick and the angle he might end up falling upon her. Hello, he shouted, then help, though he believed he was the only living person anywhere near. But here came another man, entirely bundled suspiciously bundled dusky wool and speckled tweed arboreal from a distance dark and the young man expected him to brighten up the closer he got but he never did what is it the stranger asked the young man said the lady and pointed she dead you think come said the stranger and we will see the slope the frost the possibility she was dead the young man said i'll call a doctor shall i I'm a doctor. You? The young man had never heard of a colored doctor before. Moreover, the stranger had on his back an immense duffel bag, more vagabond than medical, and looked as though he'd been sleeping rough for some time. He had a refined accent from no region the watchman could place. The same, said the stranger. Better get another. Now, now, said the man. And he took hold of the young man's sleeve, and the young man resisted. How strong a fellow are you? Enough, said the watchman. The foreigner, the doctor. His name was Leviticus Sprague. He'd been educated in Glasgow but raised in the Maritimes. Caught him by the wrist to toe the boy. He was a boy. His name was Joe Ware. He was just 19, skitteringly down the hill. Almost immediately, Dr. Sprague regretted it. The boy was unsteady on his feet and cried out as he slid. Careful, Dr. Sprague said. Here, take my shoulder. Difficult for any man. How in the world had she got there? The frost around the woman had not a footfall in it. With the green grass beneath, it looked like a foam rough sea, jade and fatal and she going under. If she had dropped out of the sky, she'd been lucky to miss that obelisk. Look in the bag, Dr. Sprague told told Jot Ware. See if that tells us anything. Dr. Sprague knelt to his patient. He saw the curve of one eye tick beneath its lid. The eyelashes of the dozing are always full of meaning and beauty. Telegraph wires for dreams and hers were no different. Dr. Sprague marveled at their fur coat loveliness. He took hold of her bare wrist, which was, against logic, warm. She blinked to reveal a pair of bayes green eyes and the soul of a middle-aged woman. When she sat up from the frost, it was as though a stone bishop had stepped from his niche. Hello, she said pleasantly to Dr. Sprague. Yes, he said to her. Then she turned to Joe Ware, who had fished the Gladstone from the Gladstone bag, a small wooden ball and a narrow wooden pin, and was regarding them, then her, wonderingly. "Ah, good," she said. "Give here." He did. She held them like a queen in an ancient painting, orb and scepter. She was alive. She was a bowler.
2: She's not just any bowler. She's a candle pin bowler. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I'm just curious how many people in this room have candle pin bowled. It is literally one of the best memories of my childhood. (laughs) I went to Maine every summer starting when I was 10. And uh, our big outing to Booth Bay Harbor was to candle pin bowl until it, tragically closed two years ago and no one in my family has gotten over it I'm
1: so sorry I know
2: it's really really um kind of devastating especially for the younger kids who only got a couple of years of candle pin bowling and we're just starting to get good at it (laughs) um but can you talk about like candle pin bowling sure being the center of this book I love it so much you had me at candle pin bowling
1: (laughs) I've and I have to say Four people who have candlepin bowled is a pretty good West Coast that is that um, is really
2: impressive
1: um, so candlepin bowling, if you don't know, or as we call it in Massachusetts, real bowling um, <laughs> is the pins are sort of straight up and down um, and the balls are small and you 'll hold them in the palm of your hand there are no holes um, and it is a harder game than ten pin bowling um, because uh, in ten pin bowling within I've become very didactic because I was actually in an English department meeting yesterday and one of my colleagues began to explain candle pin bowling to me. And he said it was invented in New York. And I said, no, no I said, <laughs> it was one of those odd moments. So now, and I, I, like, I began to give him some bowling history to try to convince him that I knew what I was talking about, which did not convince him. Um, uh, so now I'm like, becoming even more didactic on the subject of candle pin bowling. Anyhow, 10-pin bowling, within a couple of years of its invention, people were bowling perfect games every single uh, pin down. But nobody has ever bowled a perfect game of candle pin, um, which is, I find, just a really thrilling fact. Yeah, Um, yeah. it's
2: really hard. And um, I don't know, I've been wrestling with this all week, whether I actually remember that as a kid, people reset. The pins, or whether I've taken that from your book and planted it in my memory. So, like in 1970, do you, it was probably automatic, right? It was
1: probably, I'm delighted to tell you that I think that you'd got that from my book. Yeah, Um, I'm delighted too. I can't even. It's a false memory that I've implanted. And I'm owning
2: it, and I'm going to act as if that's what happened. Excellent. (laughs)
1: I mean, it was, it's not impossible that there would no, be a No, I think it's very unlikely. Timing, but, I think it's very unlikely. And I can also, this is, like, clearly, I'm not going to talk about literature at all. I'm only going to talk about candlepin bowling. Because one of the, um, candlepin uh was the first time they had automatic pin setters. Because candle pins can be set on either end. So it was right. more straightforward. Right. Before they figured out how to, yeah. Right. It's been the. All right, pin.
2: a little heartbroken but also a little yes. thrilled because how often does a book literally infiltrate your <laughs> <laughs> experiences? Why, when did the um, candlepin bowling come to you as a, well, it's more than a motif, it's sort
1: of the heart of this book. Um, it's largely because I live in Texas now. I was raised in Massachusetts mostly and also a bit in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I, I don't know if anybody has spent a lot of time around Texans. Texans are very serious about their state. And sometimes, I mean, like, super serious. I was thinking about this recently because I see the word Texan like six times a day, and there is no adjective for being from Massachusetts. Um, And my standard joke there is that the state song of Texas is The Eyes of Texas Are Upon You, and that the state uh, song of Massachusetts is the eyes of Massachusetts are politely averted. Um, And I was sort of thinking about being somebody from New England in Texas and both, some of the time I want to say to the Texans around me, you guys know it's just a state, right? (laughs) Like my kids are, they have this, they have a, a pageant in fourth grade, the Texas program, and like my kid, the year that he was in fourth grade, waved a giant Flag of Texas for like five minutes while the eyes of Texas are upon you was playing, and my husband is from England, and he was just like stunned um, and and in Texas that you you pledge allegiance to the American flag and then to the Texas flag right afterwards um so it's, it seems very strange to me, but it also seems kind of wonderful, um especially in a world where regional um, distinctions are disappearing because we tend to consume the same food and media to really embrace some aspects of the the regional quirks of where you grew up and and that yeah. you know that's candlepin bowling, yeah, it could be coffee milk. I was like trying to think of the other raspberry lime rickies, other things that only <laughs> exist um in New England, but candlepin bowling reminded me of home and seemed seemed like a a yeah. good way to write about about home
2: um i I think that there's um in my very limited experience something kind of magical about writing writing a place that you know very well but that you no longer live in. Yeah. And um and sort of going back there every day for me was like a th- thrilling thing. And um yeah, so that's yeah. kind of, that's amazing and also the the um the edifice of the bowling building, the, bowl, the what eventually becomes bowl away, is um it's almost like a church in this book. It's a place where well it's more exciting than a church. It's a place where everything happens people fall in love and do the nasty and die and and they leave and they repent and they forgive and they don't and they walk away and i'm wondering if that was something that at this at the outset you thought you were going to be able to use in such a rich way or if it was one of those things where at the end of it you're like oh well that was that was useful.
1: It's it's actually um, much of the book happens at the bowling alley, and it's partially just because practically any time I wrote something away from the bowling alley, it it the the book sort of lost its spine. Hmm. There were there uh, in the earliest drafts there was a ton of stuff that happened away from the bowling alley, and it just wasn't working somehow. That's um, so interesting. So I had yeah. to cut those pieces. What well, there's. One character, there are two brothers who appear later in the book, and one of them had a whole complicated life away from the bowling alley, and I still feel bad that I took took it away from him.
2: Was it Arch?
1: No, it was Roy. Oh,
2: Roy. Poor Roy. That's
1: okay. Yeah, he had a better life. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, I also think it's really interesting that the bowling alley in the beginning, uh, when Bertha builds it, uh, is is like a, a liberation for her and for a lot of the women in the town, and then it sort of gradually becomes an albatross, and like if you could talk a little bit about that, about the evolution of this thing that was very special in a very certain way. Well, when women, when a woman owned it, and then and then becomes almost the opposite. Yeah,
1: I don't. I'm not sure why, because I've written about it before, about the how family businesses become albatrosses, or people not wanting to go into the family business, and I had the shocking realization, because I was like, that's never happened to me, and then I realized my parents were academics, and now I'm an <laughs> academic. This is my subconscious way of complaining bitterly about it. Um, but I, I also, I I was interested in writing about something that starts off as new, and then Becomes outdated over the course mm-hmm. of the book, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's part of it. Is that it was, it was the early days of American bowling when this bowling alley is founded, um, and then it goes through sort of the rise of of bowling, and then yeah. ends when TV bowling, yeah,
2: which was yeah,
1: candlepins for dollars.
2: Yeah. Was that a real show? Yeah. Oh man, I'm, I'm going to go down that YouTube hole tomorrow.
1: Are you uh, g- watching? I I have researched other things more than I researched this book, but I did a reasonable amount of research, and that included watching a lot of candle pin games, which are just, they're, they're really soothing. They're yeah. The, and even though there's like a limited number of things, and it actually can happen when you <laughs> aim a ball at a bunch of pins, and yet every single time it's like, what's going to happen now? <laughs> he knocked down six. <laughs> Amazing. Um I love how
2: Bertha, as we just heard, just appears in this novel. And she very successfully, at least in terms of the plot of the novel, forgets her past and famously says, whenever anyone asks where she's from, well, I'm here now. And and But the rest of the characters in the book really never have that luxury. They are very... Um, burdened by genealogy, by who they are. There's a lot of orphans. There's a lot of people trying to find their place and build a constellation. And I think that's so interesting to read about right now when we have such a weird relationship to genealogy yeah. that has become confused with genetics. Yep. And so I'd love to hear you, your thoughts on that.
1: My, my grandfather, McCracken, was a genealogist. And um, part of the earliest start of this book was that I was, I was sort of casting around for the thing that I was going to write. And I was looking through my grandfather's genealogies. And I just started mining it for names. And so almost all the names in the book are from this genealogy. Oh, I, that's
2: so interesting. Okay. That's my next question, Jack.
1: Hmm. <laughs> um, like Bertha Truett, Leviticus, Sprague, uh, Joe Ware. My favorite name, Jephtha Arison. Um, they're such good names. They're all and the, such good and names. They're all re- they're all real, um, or yeah, or ninety five percent. Right. Louetta Mood. That's a name for my grandfather's genealogies, um, and so I've always been really interested in genealogy because my my grandfather was the editor of a magazine called the American Genealogist. While at the same time finding it sort of unfair and beside the point this sort of idea that people are so obsessed with who they're related to, um, when first of all, mistakes happen, <laughs> and infidelities happen, and um, all sorts of essential relationships that have nothing to do with begetting, um, and also the fact that when you read old genealogies, my grandfather did it the old-fashioned way by, he had a, he had a lemon pacer, so he drove, which if you don't know, like the Pacer was the ugliest car ever built. So it's like an exactly, it looks like a giant chiclet. Um, and his was lemon yellow, and he loved it. And he drove around to um, city halls and graveyards and and interviewed people. Um, and the genealogies are, some of the, he can, he got into a lot of detail in some places but among other things women are really hard to trace in genealogies because they change their names and they switch and the the, i've always been obsessed with this phrase that appears more than one place in my grandfather's genealogy which is probable wife of meaning we think this the this record refers to this woman but we're not positive um and so i'd always wanted to write about that and i've been really taken with the, mm-hmm. with the genetic tests you can take for genealogy. Because um, so I, I find them so peculiar.
2: It's very peculiar. Uh, and
1: in some ways, it's the logical extension. In some ways, it is not the logical extension. Yeah, I
2: mean, I always feel... First, I feel like... Um, so your grandfather, was he a genealogist just for your family? No, or was he did like, it for
1: other people, too. And
2: that was his profession?
1: When He, he was a classics professor, but when he retired, okay, so, he, yeah. he did he worked professionally as a genealogist because
2: there's someone in my dad's side of the family who does that as a hobby and I was always like and I felt like when everyone got email one of the first things that happened was weird relatives around the country who you like there are no deprees in this country who are not related so I would just get emails from random people <laughs> and you quickly figure out you had literally nothing in common right. except your name and that some somewhere. And it and it felt like um it felt like a very privileged hobby. Like what like like I I, I never really understood it in the the side of my family that I'm very close to, my mom's family were Italian immigrants. And I still can't figure like she doesn't know where her Grandparents, what village they came from, and I was pressing her on it recently because I'm trying to figure out if I can get Italian citizenship. <laughs> and um, and I said, how could you? How could you not know? And she was like, nobody cared. Yeah. Like nobody cared. Like it wasn't even like they all needed. Jo- like we we're all worried about jobs and assimilating, yeah. you know, very very quickly. But the 23andMe thing is so interesting because it does seem to confuse. Ancestry with just genetics, uh, yeah. you know. Let me there there is some shit going down in my family now about, <laughs> but so, uh, yeah.
1: But it's a very my, <clears throat> my kid who's now eleven, but when he was nine, came back from school saying, "Do you know my friend Duncan is descended from Scottish kings?" <laughs> and I was like, "Really? <laughs> I've met Duncan. That that yeah. uh, seems not that likely." Um, you have a line in
2: the book about how every boy wants to (laughs) at some point becomes interested because they think they're going to find a king I
1: think I was thinking of Duncan when I heard that yeah
2: Um, but it's the same and I used to to say to my mom all the time you know I wish after watching some costume drama I wish I lived you know in the 1800s and she was like well honey you would have been in the laundry so (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah there were no kings um I love how luck is portrayed in this novel as, as both essential and not really that random, almost something that you can conjure. And I, I think about that all the time because I've always considered myself a pretty lucky person just by accident. But my husband thinks he's lucky by intention, <laughs> and 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 I and I think both are true. But like, what does the role of luck play in the book and for the characters, or like in your mind? Do you think it's in, do you think you can actually like? I remember once, this is such a silly example, but my hus my family's um uh, we play cards a lot. And uh, and I said to my husband, "I never win. Like I always know I'm never going to win." And he said, "Really? I I always know I'm going to win." <laughs> and I thought, and I was sort of me saying, "I think you're lucky." And he was like, "No, I just always think I'm going to win." I,
1: I'm, I'm. Part of it is simply as a somebody who's been non-athletic all my life, and found myself writing a a book about a sport mm-hmm. um, almost by accident that I, like every time I've ever bowled, and I still, I st- still bowl. I can't bowl if I'm in Boston, but I can pin bowl in, in Texas sometimes. And it's all, I always convince myself I'm going to, th- this is the time I'm going to be a great bowler. <laughs> um, and it always comes like as news to me that I'm not. Right. So that I I'm somehow try to like, like visualize and bowl well. Um, but usually doesn't happen, and so I feel like a lot of the time the characters are thinking, anything yeah. about luck, they're really thinking about, yeah. this is a really disappointing answer because it's not like
0: because no. bowling is
1: a metaphor for something that's just like it's about bowling um, but I, but, it, I I, but, I, but I think but I think it does radiate out Yeah, to the it is of the kind block.
2: of just about intention, and I don't want to give away anything in the book, but there is an amazing scene. Um, where someone has to bowl for their soul, as you put it, where that really comes to play and it's very poignant and beautiful and I think that's why, like that's what made me you know, want to ask this question. Um, I love following you on Twitter. Thank you. And um, as someone who's kind of shy on Twitter, but lurks about, and one of the things I really love is when you go on a roll and you're posting links to auctions, of very unusual objects in <laughs> Victorian I've I have spent I've wasted many a morning in you know poking around those and I and I wonder if you've ever bought anything really fantastic in one of those auctions
1: what are the best things I've bought on the online auctions I once bought 54 pairs of children's opera length gloves oh which were gosh. really handy because uh, I have children and you never know when they would need <laughs> a costume. Well, yeah. I mean we've really yeah. u- we used them for scarecrows. Um I bought I bought two different presents for my husband. One of which was a stack of old Victorian like a really cheap lot of many many uh Victorian photographs which was great. Um and I also recently bought him a plaster foot that was about this big <laughs> for his birthday. Um, I, I'm married to uh, a writer named Edward Carey who published a book last year about Madame Tussauds. So like, disembodied body parts are—it's—it's. It's,
2: oh, they fit in every it's, house. It's the
1: way we say we love <laughs> each other. Yeah. I got you a foot. I bought him a glass eye when we were first going steady. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I'm trying I, 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 those are good uh, yeah I try not to buy anything too expensive online just because you never know like I was really happy the foot turned out to actually be big because you know sometimes when you buy stuff online you think it's this big and it comes this big yeah yeah
2: yeah um, I think short stories are so much harder than novels do you agree or
1: disagree? I, I agree with you <laughs>
2: And so I'm wondering what it was like for you to come back to the novel forum after a while. It's been, it's been a while since you wrote a novel. And if it felt like, did, did it feel like, oh, oh, hello, old friend, or like, oh, hello, old tormentor?
1: <laughs> it was actually kind of delightful, and, and largely because I, I had been writing novels. I just hadn't been publishing them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've got three novels um, that, I, that I did more than one draft of that I put aside. Um, there are three. The first one was terrible, and like when I finally let go of it, it sort of broke into pieces. And in my last short story collection, there are three stories that are from that novel, and nobody has ever guessed. When I've they've said which which three stories, and I've said guess, and they cannot guess because there are no characters in common, no setting in common, and no time frame in common which shows you what an excellent (laughs) novel it was. Um, And then there's a middle novel, which I may go back to. And then there's a third novel that I wrote when I was finishing up my short story collection, and I was at a semester leave, and I was just sort of like brimming with. I had written like a bunch of short stories. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Chaplin movie Modern Times. There's a scene where he's tightening bolts and then he goes out in the street and he can't stop tightening bolts and there's a lady, a buxom lady with buttons and he goes up. And so I was sort of like that with writing fiction. Like I just, like I couldn't stop. And so I wrote an entire novel. But the problem was that um, besides the fact that I wrote it too quickly and I hadn't thought about it ahead of time is that the main character was a short story sized um, character. And there was just no fixing that, so mm-hmm. I, I was writing novels, but this one, which I wrote after after finishing a collection of stories, I mean this one, felt different partially because I think I I'd, I'd, I decided, that I didn't. This sounds terrible, but I didn't care. That I was just going to write no. the novel that, that I. That sounds wanted. exactly right. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that that I w- I was going to write the.
2: But did it feel like? <laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah. And it felt like I just, I mean, not so much this. It's sort of like, I'm just going to cram it in. <laughs> like every story, boom, boom. every historical fact I've ever wanted to write about, yeah, this is going to be the, the novel in which I have a UFO and spontaneous human combustion and the Great Boston Molasses Flood, and I'm going to jam them all into one novel. Um, so so do,
2: is there ever a point, because I think about this all the time, and i and i really think about it when i read your fiction like is there ever a point where you're like this is nuts i can't do this because i
1: feel like every i every single day like
2: and so what is so like but then you're just like oh, i'm just going to try it like yeah. you, then you just try it
1: yeah i mean i spend remarkably little time thinking about what will happen to a book
0: when right. i'm done with
1: it or or maybe I learned not to think that much about it with this book and that one of the things that happened to the other books is that somehow I was concerned about when I was going to finish and and what it was going to look like. And I, I worried much less mm. with this book because I figured I could solve things later. One of the big differences from writing this novel than any other novel that I've written, published novels or unpublished novels, is that previous I've always done a ton of drafts and I've written a lot of extra stuff and had to cut it out but previously every time I started a draft I would tell myself that this was going to be it like this was the draft I was going to fix things I was really going to knock it out of the park and then I would get to the end of the, the draft and I would realize I hadn't gotten it whereas with this book I knew early on that I was gonna do a ton of drafts. And so I probably did more drafts and more quickly and certainly with, a, with much more pleasure. Um, and, and part of it was sort of like not caring or not, not thinking that I had to get it right this time. And so there were, in, in the early drafts, it had a terrible ending, um, like, a, like a very amateur ending. Um, and there was extra stuff but it didn't, it took almost nothing to to get rid of that stuff, it felt like to okay. me.
2: Whatever that spell is. <laughs> we're going to do it as soon as we're, we're concluded here. I feel like there's a line in the book when a, when a character is writing about another character that says, um, believe your nonsense, make it true. And that just resonated to me as a writer. And I felt like I need to put that little post-it up on because, you know, some of it is just that. It's just like... Be- like, I read that as, like, stop questioning it. Just do it and make it feel true. Yeah. And, I mean, the book is beautiful. Thank Let's you for writing way. it. Thanks. And you guys, um, why don't you ask some questions? Only if you have them. Sure, Antoine. Antoine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that the, uh, the main character
1: of this novel that's on a shelf is a short story size Yeah, the difference. I mean, so it's sort of like like I have two standard um, metaphors, and the, and the first is just it's like the size of organs, as far as I'm concerned, which is to say, you can't transplant a small heart into a big body. It doesn't mean the small heart isn't as much of a heart, just that it's not big enough to power a large organism and i i think it was that for for novel characters to me have to be have to remain mysterious to you through the writing of them and that you write to understand them better but for me anyhow a short story character i can apprehend almost immediately and i might learn it's not that i'm i'm close to learning about them as i write but that i i feel like i understand them sort of from the beginning. and this guy just like he i i knew who he was and he wasn't that interesting and he just he just wasn't big enough to support the book and there was no way to make him bigger. um and also I mean th- this the, th- and the big thing was like I wasn't interested enough in him to sort of like t- try to remove him from the book and 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 understand him and the book didn't make sense with anybody else so that I have to say the middle book that I put away that was and the first book too those were, were both sort of painful to walk away from and by sort of I mean crushing and horrible um, but that third book I like almost I two people read it for me. Henry, our mutual agent, mm-hmm. was one of them. And I sort of thought, yeah, you know, I I don't write enough books to write one that I think is fine. Um, I'm curious whether you think
2: that this
1: book like could have existed without those other books or whether there's something inextricably, like you had to go through those books to get here. I'm sh- I'm sure I did um and partly just cuz i do think that sort of everything i do believe that no writing is wasted and that and that you figure things out as you write but also i mean in a, in a, in an odd way every writer i know who's published a book wishes that they could return to the state of innocence that they were in when they wrote their first book because it's actually a state of 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 much more hubris and delusions of grandeur and this sort of sense of thinking, I can do anything because nobody's gonna read this book. And there was something about writing my fourth book after not having published one in a long time that really sort of pleasantly returned me to that stage was that it's sort of what we were talking about. I, I sort of didn't care about what happened. I mean, I did care, I don't mean disingenuous if you had said there's no way this book is going to be published you're going to keep on writing it and be like no god <laughs> not that again but that it felt private to me in a way that some of the other books didn't like it returned me to a stage of privacy um, and yeah I think, I think that that's and I think I also just had sort of worked on some novelistic skills that I learned writing the, those other three books I try not to write towards models, though I read constantly when I write, just because for me, and I'm always really careful that whenever I talk about writing, anytime you hear a writer saying anything certain about the writing process, all they mean is this is the way I do it and I would like validation. Um, So I think there are people who use models for their own books all the time. For me, it feels like those footsteps put down on the floor to teach you how to dance that I, like, I would only ever be looking at my feet to see <laughs> where my feet went um, and i suddenly somebody recently asked me what novels I'd been reading and I paused and thought why can't I remember what novels I was reading and then I realized it was because I was on the fiction jury for the Pulitzer Prize oh. while I was working on it so the answer is every goddamn book yeah. published in 2017, essentially, um, which was great. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. Um, and so I was, I was, I was and, and I know it got into this book, I was consuming high numbers of both novels and um, short stories at the, at the time, but doing less of that sort of like, maybe I'll read Bleak House again to see how it seeps <laughs> into my work, and more like, better pick up another book. Yeah, and and um, how I structure the novel, and I've, I have uh, former students in the um, room, so I, I apologize if you've, this is like my standard metaphor, which is that there is some, th- somebody once asked Michelangelo, how do you sculpt the David? And he said, you take a block of marble and you cut away everything that's not the David, which I think is how some people can write novels. They can sort of see the shape and carve it out of something. Um, and that I work much more like a, a sculptor of my youth. I my mother, is, my mother was an Iowan, and we went to the Iowa State Fair, and the butter cow lady made life-sized cows out of butter um, that were amazing and very realistic um, and beautiful. And so my metaphor is some people can take several tons of butter and cut away everything that's not a cow. Others of us have to spend a lot of time churning our own butter first and then finding the cow in that butter Um, and I that's how I write that I have to get material on the page before I sort of know the shape of it I have to have some idea I don't just sort of launch off with no idea of what shape the book is going to be I know sort of where I'm aiming and I know how long it's going to be and I try to make a decision about how long the chapters are gonna be fairly early on, because I once wrote a book, um, my, my second novel I wrote without chapter breaks, which was, a ter- I mean, and then, and then put them in, which was a really bad way to do it. Um, but so that, that's sort of how I see it, and, and yeah, I, I know shape, but for me, drafting is sort of figuring out how one thing leads to another. Um, which i don't when I write short stories, I have much more i I know before I start sort of what the events are going to be before I start writing um and it's the sentences that surprise me in that case I don't know if that answer. Thank you. I'd like, like sympathy in the absence of actually finishing and publishing those novels. The um, the pity of strangers is actually. I'm not, I'm not even joking. It's and and also truthfully, one of the things that allows me to give up novels is to also kind of go, yeah, I'm tough. You know, I can get rid of those things. I I've I've had to 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 me one of the secrets of getting anything done as a writer, and because it's a really long game being a writer, you have to figure out. How to continue to write, and for me, it, a lot of it has to to do with figuring out what your process—I sort of hate that word—I'm trying to think of a better one—is, and I just know about myself that I have always written about twice as much as I end up publishing, um, and I wish it hadn't been whole books, but it's it's okay. Like I don't I don't spend time thinking. Oh, maybe I should. Except for this middle one, which I m- might go back to. Um, and the I I give up on books when, um, first of all, if I've become bored by them because I don't think there's a there's a good way to write through boredom. And also, I have more than once asked friends like, if you, if I really worked on this book, would it be an okay book or would it be a terrific book? And if they don't say terrific, then I'm like, I don't want to. I really don't want to write a book that's, that's not as good as I can possibly make it. The question is, must be
2: really smart those books. Can you pin
1: it down to like, one is the girl who doesn't Just some books are just not used that what are saying? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And what makes it not used to try to do that? See, I just spent too much on, I think you can, you can also work a book to death. Um, and I've done that. And I have to say, I also, Sometimes when I teach, I have told students, I do not do this all the time, I said this in front of a group of people, and they said, how often do you do this? I'm like, three times in, in my life, but to somebody who's an incredibly talented writer, who's working on a book they've been working on for six years, often they started working on it when it, they were an undergraduate, because um, it's really hard to give up something. Um, and uh, I've said, you know what, I think it's time for you to acknowledge that this is, that you that you're not interested, you're not, you're not composing anymore, you're not inventing anymore, and I have a pretty good track record with those people going on to publish successful books yeah. next and being sort of freed up and, and, uh, and happy. I, the, the story I'll tell is that I just did an event with Paul Harding, and he was in my class, and he was working on, on one novel and then wrote the, a story that um, turned into Tinkers, and I remember him saying, I don't know which one to work on, and I was like... This one, <laughs> this is the one you're interested in. It's on every page. Um, and I'd, like, I like—I didn't give him advice other than that, other than, you know, I think this book is done. I think you should work on this one. Out of curiosity, is something you have Yes, but. No, okay. uh, the cover, <laughs> um, having read the book, I know why this is on the cover, but I was wondering if you had any input into it why, why that a bowling alley cover unless that would have been a doll cover um i had a little input but not a lot and they did come up with a cover they came up with one cover that i did not like at all and then there was a a cover that made me laugh every time i saw it which i loved which was a vintage photo of a woman on a bicycle with like a very funny hat and a thrilled expression on her face um but then Somebody at the publishing house said, this looks too much like nonfiction, And then they came, came up with this. I follow you on Twitter, so I know you're on Twitter. You're getting stuck in airports. I wonder what you're reading now for pleasure. <laughs> I've read MFA applications all day long. <laughs> Spent 14 hours in the, eastern, in the <laughs> eastern Iowa airport. Um, and in that time, i I read a lot of MFA applications. Um, I, um, and I'm trying to think, I've just got a, in galley, a book by a colleague of mine, Oscar Costares called Where We Come From, which I'm really looking forward to, to reading. Um, I, I just always have that problem that people ask me, what are you reading? I'm like, I have, my memory is wiped out of ever having read a single novel. Yeah. <laughs> which I know it's not true, but.
2: <laughs>
1: like to other no I'd love you I to tell you, tell you. I am in this <laughs> yes right now, but yeah. um, I have the the one thing that has changed in my one of the biggest things that's changed there are other things in my writing process is I used to have friends who would read my book along while I was writing it a few chapters at a time and now I don't show my book to anybody until I've got a whole draft Um and I think it's partially I live with people now. I didn't used to live with people. It um, makes it sound like I live in a commune. I, <laughs> I'm married and I've got kids, and they these people talk to me all the time, and um, and so I think I I've had to like figure out a way to to have privacy around around the, me drafting books. The the good thing about having done that is that I'm then once I've got a draft of a book, I'm very I'm very anxious that somebody reads it and tells me that it's okay. So I I send it to my my um, my husband reads it, my friend Ann Patchett, my friend Paul Lisicki, they all read it. I have we are we have a wonderful agent who's an amazing reader. Um, and I, he I think in the last couple of books actually I've sent it to him first because if it's if it's terrible, it's his job to tell me. But anybody who I don't have a business relationship with, like it feels more complicated. And I know that he, he really would say, <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, but other than that, um, no. I have no rituals except for despair and self-loathing. But, um <laughs> Mm -hmm. I have to have people tell me that it's time. I really do. Um, The the other thing, I also sometimes know if I I know I can't, I don't feel like I can make it any better. And I don't mean, because I'm not one of these writers, it's great, couldn't possibly be improved, but just actually that little bit of like, oh God, I could keep working on this, but I don't think actually I'll improve it if I keep working on it. Thank you very much. Yeah,
2: that's it. Thanks, you guys.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.